It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We have a special program for you today. We have a roundtable with participants from Crime Think It's Going Down and also a friend out in the Bay Area that organizes around trauma and climate change. And we're going to be talking about what's been happening this summer, how people are responding, and sort of the broader political, strategic, and organizational questions that that brings up. We're going to be covering a lot of ground. We were joking before we started recording that obviously we're not going to be able to solve any of these problems. Uh, but as we enter into a period where we're dealing with the ramifications of climate change, global warming, and everything that that entails, I mean, literally as we're recording this, um, you know, the latest hurricane has hit Florida. Puerto Rico, once again, is in a crisis from another hurricane that's hit. Pakistan is dealing with monstrous floods. People in Jackson, Mississippi are dealing with the water infrastructure breaking down after flooding there. There's a lot going on, but there's also a lot to look at and think about. Uh, so just to kick us off, over the past several years, we've seen a rise in militant anti-colonial struggles against extraction. Of course, Standing Rock being one example autonomous disaster relief initiatives, land defense struggles. Just curious, you know, what do you see as the strengths and weaknesses of these various forms? What I see with a lot of these struggles, so like we're thinking about points of commonality, right? One of the things I've really seen, there's sort of two elements to this that I think really separate this from, say, groups like the Sierra Club or Greenpeace or something like that, or even Extinction Rebellion, like groups that are trying to do these sort of things within the realms of officialdom. When that happens, when movements kind of take that posture, um, they end up getting separated from the actual conditions on the ground. And one of the things that happened at a place like Standing Rock, or one of the things that's happening in these autonomous disaster initiatives, is this kind of reattachment down to the actual space where the action's happening, where the activity is occurring, where the actual impacts are being felt. And there's this immediacy to it, and kind of concreteness to it, that I think is really different from sort of appropriations of, of similar things in the past. At the same time, though, I think a lot of these initiatives sort of get stuck in scale. And they end up either limiting themselves to, say, just stopping a pipeline or limiting themselves to just helping with disaster relief. And often the broader context that they're talking about, which they are talking about, is getting lost in the kind of message as the events are playing out. And so I'm not entirely sure how that gets remedied, but uh, it's just something I've sort of noticed as these have played out. Yeah, absolutely. That definitely that definitely tracks with my um, assessment of the situation also. One of the things that I feel like um, is related to this that I see happening is that, now obviously this is super varied depending on where you're at 
like what regions you're in and, you know, where you are situated with relationship to um, material access and, and material scarcity. But I do see people moving away from strategies of redistribution um, and toward these potentially um, longer term viable strategies of building material interdependence from those ground conditions that uh, you're identifying. And that is going to be super important for, um, in particular, people who are are maybe used to what you're indicating, like a less um, like place based organizing, or less place based politics. And that's going to become like, increasingly important as we see people starting to move around as well. Like, how do we maintain uh, a sense of connection to the specific needs of the places that we're in as people are 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 moving more broadly? Um, and then, you know, there's definitely just a call to move beyond this kind of crisis response model, which is unsustainable at, at the rate and severity of the crises that we're engaging. Yeah, and I think one of the more interesting parts of what happened in 2020 for me was actually the way that it connected to these campaigns that we're talking about here. Not necessarily in an overt political way, but in a sort of tactical or energetic way, right? That what we saw during the uprising was a similar sort of push into this kind of direct engagement with the state, right? Away from let's try and do things through budget processes, right? Now things got pushed back into that form by the end, right? But there was this moment at the beginning, at least where I was, where things really broke out physically into the world and all everything became very immediate, became something that was right in front of us something that we could experience very directly in touch. Um, that immediacy, I think, really reshapes a lot of the tactical decisions people make, the approaches that they use, um, and, and their objectives, right, in ways that are really ultimately very helpful if they're not, as you were very aptly saying, stuck into this mode of crisis response all the time, which is generally how a lot of these uh, campaigns have sort of arisen, is they're sort of in reaction to something else. I think one of the questions we've asked on this program to a lot of guests is that how do we sort of funnel people into these autonomous struggles and movements and land defense projects that are showing up at climate marches and stuff like that? Because obviously there's more people that are sort of engaging in this symbolic sort of, hey, politicians listen to us do something, as opposed to go on the ground and engage in like blocking a pipeline or even doing stuff like autonomous disaster relief. But I think it's it's becoming more and more clear that the autonomous movements themselves have to build the capacity to bring those people in. Yeah, I mean, I think we have some pretty exciting and important opportunities around that question right now. I mean, I hate to put it in that frame. It's exciting. I mean, obviously, it's terrifying. Um, but, you know, as people who have been concerned with this issue of climate change for, you know, some decades now and working in far less favorable organizing conditions. It's like, you know, it's it, it it's realistic to say that there are more opportunities now to get people involved. And I think that um, one of the major sort of strategic shifts that we can engage with in order for that to be effective is that a lot of our work, you know, back to that point of crisis response has focused on you know, disaster response or, um, you know, this kind of oppositional engagement. But there is an incredible amount of work that needs to be done in terms of preparation and mitigation. Mm -hmm. And the, there are a lot of people who are having 
very real and super deep seated anxieties right now around what that's going to look like. And there are not great strategies at the local uh, level for, for managing that in a proactive way and in a pro-social way. And to the extent that we are engaging with people, that has actually like a very significant impact on how they respond in the event of an actual crisis. So that's an, a big opportunity for us, I think, as a, um, a you know, movement of people who are who are attempting to create pro-social structures in our own lives and in the world around us. Well, just to move forward, this summer we saw a massive flooding across Pakistan that will forever change the country and it's displaced massive amounts of people. Also in Jackson, Mississippi, the water infrastructure there that was already under duress crashed once again. Groups like Cooperation Jacks are now working on creating their own uh, water catchment infrastructure and also they're doing massive mutual aid work, which they've already been doing for a long time. On this tip, how can autonomous disaster relief efforts go beyond just providing aid, but also either build infrastructure or seek to take power away from the state when often this is one of the moments in which people can see that it's at its weakest and is actually not providing for people? First, I want to say that my heart goes out to everybody who is impacted by these these disasters in, in Pakistan, in in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, right now in Florida, everyone across the world who's suffering as a consequence of the way that capitalism distributes resources so that some people have more than they could ever use and, and other people don't have what they need to survive. Yeah, and it really is up to us as anarchists or as compassionate people to to respond to these disasters in a way that that shows that you know, that we value each other's lives um, and and that we're concerned for each other. Um, the the question you're asking is the right one, and and I think that the very simple answer is just that we can't see our response to crises as a, as responding to individual crises anymore. We have to understand that we are going to be continuously responding to systemic crises. And as we build infrastructure, we should be building infrastructure that can continuously take in uh, the, the displaced people and, and the, and the energy that, that it will take to, to care for each other um, and direct that towards producing long-term uh, solutions, you know, long, long-term infrastructure that can, that can ultimately then take the offensive against the causes of these problems. When I, when I think about, um, as you said, autonomous disaster relief efforts, you know, the, the first reference point for me is, is common ground in, uh, in New Orleans in response to Hurricane Katrina, which basically inaugurated the current era of mutual aid projects. We had food, not bombs and, all these things before that, but Common Ground introduced disaster relief, which really characterizes the, uh, you know, the modern generation of mutual aid projects, which are all oriented towards responding to various kinds of disasters that afflict us. Now, today in places like Lebanon and Syria, which have been racked by a series of disasters, models that can provide for people's needs, uh, concentrate social power for good or for ill in the in the hands of institutions some of which are more powerful than the state in in at least in regions of those parts of the world um we that doesn't necessarily mean that everything will work out because 
for, for the best, you know, it doesn't mean everything will necessarily work out for the best because any number of different institutions with different agendas will be contending to do that in those, in those spaces that emphasizes, that underscores why it's so important for us to be, uh, to be acting in, in that space. But in the United States, especially the state, the state structures do not provide for people's needs at any time and certainly not in disasters either. You know, our society here is still structured according to the logic of an extractive colonial project. So the, the state is just not there to look out for most of us. Um, and as cascading environmental disasters just hit us one after the other, there's going to be more and more waves of, of displaced people, of, of climate refugees. So this, this means that it's not just a question of, uh, of trying to get resources to people or trying to house people every, every September and October, you, you know, in our, in our homes as, as people have to flee New Orleans, then go back to it. It also means that we have to be understanding anti-border struggles as being an essential part of responding to environmental crises, you know, and, and, uh, as, as you were, hinting at earlier, figuring out how displaced populations can connect with the land and the struggles in the, in the places, the new places that they have to occupy. Our, our basic hypothesis, speaking now about people in crime think circles, is that one of the defining conditions of the 21st century is it is going to be that, um, that life is held increasingly cheap. You know, we saw this during the high point of the COVID-19 pandemic. And, and I imagine that we will see this more and more as the, the spaces where life is, is valued become more and more sort of armed and, you know, fortified citadels and, right. and the, the rest of us find ourselves outside of those. So struggling against the, the fortifications, struggling against all of the different social mechanisms that divide people into valuable and, and unvalued. Uh, all of the things that we are already aspiring to do as opponents of capitalism, white supremacy, and patriarchy, those are also going to be essential to responding to the environmental crisis. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the like massive expansion of the sacrifice zones is like a really important thing that we need to be um, acknowledging is happening now around us, and that you know, understanding that that. On the whole, I think a lot of our um, our our people and our potentials are oftentimes concentrated in these same places that are um, essential or like deemed essential to the the continued um, accumulation of the capitalist system. So, you know, understanding like what does it mean for the sacrifice zones to be expanding, and what how do we need to understand um, our movement? as people who are hoping to be able to support from, from I think both probably within and outside of those zones of containment, um, there's going to be a lot of important strategic questions for us to answer there. And I think to the, to the point about, about borders, like starting to maybe understand it, those border questions as both, you know, as you mentioned, like they're super important to these um you know, to engaging with these questions responsibly. But also I think that, that we're going to start to see more internal borders established and thinking about what, what that means for people who are internally displaced within populations and then, you know, 
acknowledging that there's also a privilege of adaptation and a privilege of retreat for people and that there are plenty of people who can't do that. And so there's going to be, you know, there's, this becomes like a very nuanced, um, yeah, it becomes a very nuanced question uh, as, as we try to figure out how, how we need to be available and, and what sorts of resources we need to be able to, to deal with all the eventual problems that we're, that we're already seeing and are, are getting worse. I can just see situations getting to the point like in Jackson where, so for instance, you know, the, the infrastructure has just collapsed and the state is saying basically, well, you, we'll give you only a portion of what's needed in order to fix it, but you've got to basically figure out the rest on your own. I mean, I can see potentially a situation in people going and like taking over infrastructure. And I think that one of our tasks is to like put that idea in people's heads because if we don't, there's going to be others that are going to point the finger and say like, it's these people's fault. It's the immigrants fault. It's, you know, it's this and that it's people here, you know, trying to divide us as opposed to pointing upwards and saying like, you know, we should be running things, you know, based on our own interests. When we talk about compassion and taking care of people uh, who are impacted by these disasters, I, I am not saying that we should uh, in the margins of the ongoing capitalist disaster, just try to get water bottles to, to the displaced. I, we, we are talking about taking action to appropriate all of the resources of our society and, and distribute them according to a, a more just logic. Well, and I think what everyone's <clears throat> hinting at is there's this kind of core question. As I was hearing you all give, give answers, the thing that kept coming up in my head is how do we frame the idea of relief, right? Mm -hmm. So generally when we talk about disaster relief, that's framed often, whether or not that's in our circles, and I would say in, in certain ways this does kind of bleed over into the discourse in anarchist communities about this, but there is this sense in which recovery means a return to normal, right? And we see this with, you know, we saw this with the whole Biden campaign. I mean, like, what was the whole Biden campaign? It was about returning to normal, right? That really the idea of sort of helping people after a hurricane, at least in, say, like the FEMA mindset or whatever, is to help people return back to normal, right? And so one of the things that we have to really do, I think, in this um, in this discourse, like in, in this process, is really fundamentally redefine what both recovery and normality mean, right? So if we are talking about crisis as a perpetual phenomena, right, so as a consistently rolling sequence of crises, which I think anybody who's paying attention to America in 2022 could see almost nothing else, right? Um, everything is collapsing and it's really, really obvious. And so right now, at this point in time, so post Cold War, kind of the, um, you know, and after the post end of history sort of era, um, one of the things that changed about the state at that point is that the state stopped being about projects and, you know, sort of human enterprise and kind of this move into the future and started being grounded entirely in a discourse of crisis and security and crisis mitigation. And so if crisis and security and crisis mitigation are normality, then really what we're talking about, we're doing disaster relief is that destruction of that. Right. And it really involves this reframing. So again, if we're going to end the disasters, right, that means destroying capitalism because 
as a state of normality, that's what constructs the state, the conditions of disaster, not necessarily the reality of them all the time, but the conditions in which they occur. Right. And so that reframing, I think, is really critical. Um, I, some groups like Common Ground did, I think, did that really, really well for a period of time in, in New Orleans. I think did a really good job with that. Um, but it's. Yeah, I, I really think reframing this is is a core way to kind of move this sort of work out of reacting and into something that's sort of more proactive, more strategic, more able to sort of determine its own pace of activity. I think that your point is exactly on. And I think one of the interesting things is that this really does come back to this question that uh, was raised before about how do we welcome people into these movements? And I think, you know, when we're thinking about these reframings and when we're thinking about the engagement with people outside of our milieus who are looking at and seeing the material realities of their lives, that there are not going to be easy solutions to these problems, that the systems that they were dependent on are now unreliable, right? Regardless of whether or not it's going to be obvious to them that those systems are causing those problems. They're going to see them as unreliable. But that's a really exciting and important opportunity for us to um, help share with them some of the examples that people who are working in other parts of the world and places where this has already kind of come to a head in various ways have developed. So like to the point of this question about, um, you know, sending bottles of water to Jackson, you know, the people who are building uh, water catchment and, and treatment in Puerto Rico are offering a really valuable example of some way to um, reduce some of the long-term vulnerability that maintaining reliance on these increasingly obviously unreliable systems um, produces for people. And so I think that that's something that's going to be broadly and increasingly available as we you know see the the beautiful and creative experiments that people are engaging in collectively all over the world and are able to kind of um glean some of the, the lessons from those and and bring those back into new experiments in other parts of of our um of the spaces that we that we occupy with people who we now uh, can relate to in terms of our immediate needs um perhaps more <clears throat> more so than than they would have seen our needs overlapping in the past. I'm just curious, you know, looking at something like the Defend the Atlanta Forest campaign, how have these campaigns and that one in particular become such a focal point? And what can we learn from the contemporary uh, efforts at land defense as we go forward? First, I want to say Defend the Atlanta Forest, for, for good or for ill, is one of only a few efforts to innovate new political strategies in the United States after the George Floyd uprising. Uh, some of the other efforts to innovate new strategies are also about defending space or defending public space, such as the defense of encampments of people who have no place to live, which we've seen in some parts of the country. Um, and, you know, in, in part, those are all responses to the increasing gentrification of, of all space, you know, the, the way that the flood of, of money into the real estate market um, has made it almost impossible for people to be anywhere. But, but yeah, defend the Atlanta forest as a, as an effort to chart a way forward, a way to improve on the, uh, the models that people 
got experience with during the George Floyd uprising is, is really promising. And I think that's something that we should uh, focus attention on. Basically, what, what's happened in Atlanta uh, is a, a perfect storm. You know, we have there's a, a campaign against environmental destruction in a part of the country that is going to be impacted by uh, climate change. At the same time, it's a campaign against police violence and against the increasing militarization of the police. It's a it's a campaign that that expands what the the toolbox for pursuing police abolition could be rather than just trying to vote in city council people who will push through a defund the police uh, agenda. This, this suggests that police abolition is something that people could carry out in you know, grassroots, direct action-based movements. And and finally, uh, Defend the Atlanta Forest is also a campaign against the entertainment industry, which is to take over and destroy half of the forest there. Uh, if I understand correctly, in order to build a studio that will churn out more uh, outright propaganda, more police shows, you know, more of this sort of... Uh, virtual reality stay indoors sort of consumerism that that people are forced to accept as the world itself is eroded you know around us um and it's finally i say it's a perfect storm also because people are confronting the the white supremacist roots of land distribution in atlanta you know which you know, the, it was originally the homeland of indigenous people who were driven out of the forest and, and then was used as a prison farm, you know, uh, especially targeting the, the black population. So the Defend the Forest addresses environmentalism as something that is fundamentally interconnected with all of these other struggles and, and understands them, you know, the, the, the strategy confronts all of these different aspects of our of our era as as interlinked let me poke you a little bit on that because i know crime think has put out some stuff on defend the atlanta forest what especially about what people are doing on the ground actually translates to you know mobilizing people to get them out there's actually a recent um documentary that just came out about 45 minutes long uh, independent journalists went out into the forest. I mean, obviously there's stuff happening. There's like raves, there's, you know, forest walks, there's mutual aid stuff happening. There's obviously the militant side, which is going on as well. The defense of the forest pushing back against the police, but just talk about like, what's the feeling there that's happening. That's like successful. Well, I, I want to say first, they're successfully employing diversity of tactics, you know, understood not, not as a tolerance of difference, but as a positive project, integrating the different capabilities of, of different sectors of the population, integrating different approaches and discourses into a mutually beneficial whole. You know, Defend the Atlanta Forest is a, it's not even one campaign, really. It's a few different intersecting campaigns that, that all provide space for, for different, different people. Now, one of the most important aspects of this, as you as you reference, is that the forest itself serves as an autonomous space, you know, as, as what we would call a space of encounter, a, a space where people from you know different parts of the population can encounter each other on different terms, can discover what their potential is, you know, what, what their shared capabilities are outside of the logic of, of capitalism, you know, and and through 
occupying the space together and the the consistent participatory activities of of protests and also just shared presence a a sort of a new social fabric is is woven a, a population that that can defend the uh preconditions for for us existing on this earth you know um so some of what's been most inspiring for me is just that the forest has offered a space for this sort of joyous, affirmative, creative, collective activity that the, uh, for example, the last week of action there, um, which, you know, it'd be possible to misunderstand it just as a music festival, but really activism in our, our time, we are often having to go without joyous, affirmative, creative, collective activity. We are often isolated or engaged in these sort of grueling uh, struggles or like just uh, emotionally draining like labor or challenges. Um, being in a space that, that is, that is joyous, that is pleasurable, it, and that is nourishing. And that therefore a lot of people who might not otherwise choose to be activists, uh, will want to inhabit is really important. It creates a space in which people can go through a, a political process of development and, you know, uh, establish like uh, a shared sense of what they're trying to do together. Um, and really, you know, I mean, for me, it reminds me of the, the squatting movement of the 1980s and 1990s, where if you're, if you're at a, a music festival uh, where there's a door price and there's bouncers and so on, it's a totally different thing than if you're all together because of your shared uh, commitment to defend a space, you know, in, in that, in that, situation it means something different to hear a breakdown or a breakbeat you know a breakdown or a breakbeat is a is a way for capitalists to you know accumulate profit if it's in a club but if it's in a forest where it's a that you're defending together the, you know the artistic um contributions that people bring you experience them as a celebration of your collective strength and and that creates a different relationship to to culture you know um Another thing that makes the the forest defense work is that there's a a spectrum of different options for how to be involved, from going to the occasional demonstration to if people have their hands free to permanently occupy the forest and engage in perpetual open struggle against those who are trying to destroy it. I, I want to say something also about the the choice to defend. Uh, a forest, which is, it's not an old growth forest. You know, the, the Atlanta forest is not, um, it's not like a, a place that you could have eco-tourist, uh, I don't know, you wouldn't get like a tour guides making money walking bourgeois people around the, the woods pointing out the redwoods. You know, this, basically the Atlanta forest is, it's like dandelions growing out of the concrete, you know? So what, what's being defended here is not something that is, understood as exceptional uh it's it's actually wildness itself the promise of what this campaign represents is not a future where there will be eco-tourist uh preserves but rather degrowth as a goal in all environments and the fact that this is taking place in an urban environment uh, with all the volatile possibility of you know concentrated populations uh, means that it can be a, like a participatory social movement that has the potential to spread, uh, and wildly to get out of control. And this, 
this contrasts with some of the old Earth First examples that come to mind when you think about this, like the defense of the Redwoods, which largely took place far away from cities. You know, the, the exception, if you go back and think about the the old Earth First movements, would be the, the Minnehaha Free State, which actually mm-hmm. was in Minneapolis, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we could go back to those those examples and, and see what really made some of them succeed. Um, you know, the, there's the anti-roads movement in England also as an example, but, but in all those ways, the, the forest defense stuff in Atlanta um, really updates ecological defense for the post George Floyd era. You know, and, mm-hmm. and finally, I, I want to say this is possible. It's possible in the first place, just because a critical mass of activists and rebels in Atlanta succeeded in preserving their relationships and their projects and their, their political momentum from the previous rounds of struggle. So in that way, there's a, a continuum, a continuum between interpersonal symbiotic relationships and the preservation of the ecosystem as a whole. Yeah, I think um, that's something you mentioned that really jumps out for me. I think that there's an opportunity in the defend the forest space um, that I think a lot of people are taking really seriously to heal some of the um, the wounds of displacement that are you know experienced both by the Muscogee tribe who um, you know came back and you know brought their native language and their native dance back to their native lands for the first time in what was it over 200 years um, and also for people who had been living in Atlanta and had not been feeling connected to that part of the land to come into that space and to build new connections with the land around them that was sort of in their backyard but wasn't being used as a as a space of wildness, as a space of possibility. Um, on the whole, at least this is what um, what I've been told by people who have been down there on the ground. Um, and so I think that something about that um, – you know, the effort of reconnection and the kind of uh, pace of connection, you know, um, cultivation in the space and like getting to know the land and living off that land, um, as a lot of people who are living in the forest are, are doing to, you know, to varying extents, has in and of itself a really important significance for this time in our kind of climate crisis reality. And I think to... Um, to the point of tactical innovations, like something that it seems really important to me at this moment also is the kind of um, the methodology through which they people in the uh, forest defense campaign have been kind of breaking down these really big, overwhelming kind of complex issues into smaller human scale, actionable campaigns Um you know, in particular, trying to disrupt the relationships between contractors who are supposed to be preparing the land for development um, and the, uh, you know, larger institutions that are um, contracting them to do that has been successful. And the, in the, you know, in the process of, of um, you know, achieving these successes, they've been able to really build additional momentum. And I think in kind of provide a blueprint for some of the people who might be now looking at this climate change, uh, you know, catastrophe that that we're looking at and, you know, asking this question of like, where do I start and what could I possibly do or what could I and my crew possibly do, um, which I think is like a really tempting 
you know, it's, it's a, it's a tempting thing to feel overwhelmed, even <laughs> if we do have, uh, you know, like histories and experiences of the ways that our, um, you know, interventions can be, can be actually very significant, uh, depending on how well organized we are and how clever we are, I suppose. <laughs> well, and I want to, I want to emphasize like a lot of what's going on in Atlanta, or at least the foundations of what's going on in Atlanta is the result of a lot of years of hard work. Uh, people down there have been really organizing on ground level for years now, um, like running spaces, doing all these kind of mutual aid projects. Like it, it's really the way that at least people I talk to down in Atlanta think about organizing um, is in this, this way, which is grounded in immediacy, right? That they're organizing in their neighborhood about things that are happening in their neighborhood or maybe in their city. And, that sort of brings everything into the space in which the community kind of becomes the terrain in which things occur. And in the process of becoming a part of that community, they're, you know, over the years, um, the terms of conflict in Atlanta have really changed. And they've gone um, from terms that were, I'd say, probably kind of similar, like 2014, 2015, to where a lot of sort of the language around like BLM protests were, and now has moved into this like much more militant phase. Uh, much more radical phase. And that happened in that same period of time that a lot of the rest of us experienced. Um, one of the things that's really fascinating about some of what they do in Atlanta to me is the way that they understand space. So uh, people I've talked to down there, the way that they're talking about the forest is not as the sort of space that they had to fight and claim and hold, but is a space that they're declaring autonomy, like autonomous, right? They're saying this is already autonomous and we're just going to make sure that you can't compromise that at all, right? That there's this sort of audacious declaration that occurs where they're essentially functionally saying all the private property claims of the state don't exist. We don't care. Um, that's irrelevant. And we're not even going to make you take those claims away. We're just going to say that they don't matter. And then we're going to defend the forest when you try and make them matter. It's approaching it from a directionality in which we're assuming empowerment and we're assuming sort of anarchic activity. And then we're kind of defending that space from the kind of imposition of statism, right? That way of framing things really gives this, creates this kind of really wide open space for experimentation all of a sudden, because now it's not, the focus isn't necessarily about taking and holding space like it was an Occupy, right? The focus is a lot more on this kind of, creation of autonomy that is already declared and then the defending of the boundaries of that. Um, I think that that's an absolutely fascinating and incredibly productive way to reframe a lot of these struggles and that it's inherently a kind of proactive strategic approach from the very beginning, just in the way that they're kind of framing what they're doing. This is more of a theoretical question, but among elite circles, discussion and response to climate change remains locked within discussions about the market providing solutions or UN agreements about reducing carbon emissions by a set date, all of which either have not come to fruition or seem hopelessly unable to address the current crisis. As we continue into the decade and going forward, I I'm curious you know, how you see the elites and how they either address or talk about or relate to climate change, how that will change possibly. I mean, I guess that's also a really, that's a really complex question. And I think at least from my position, I would say in lots of different ways, uh, depending on who and where we're talking about. Um, 
you know, obviously there's a, there's an, an incentive for elites to continue to try to keep the, you know, the thing on the rails, keep the train on the rails. Um, and, you know, continuing to put forward these solutions as, um, you know, long term viable is going to be really important for them to, you know, maintain from, you know, what their perspective is like some kind of uh, social order. So um, I think, yeah, obviously, they'll they'll continue to attempt to do that. Um, now, that being said, I think that. In a lot of spaces that will actually start to look differently. So, like, for example, there's a I think a pretty broad understanding that we don't have necessarily the resources for um you know we are out in on the west coast so we don't you know we don't have the resources for uh fire mitigation and fire response that we're going to need ongoing so um you know community engagement in in fire mitigation and preparation is going to be really important so you know, to what extent is the state going to try to move into that space and capture and, you know, control that preparation? And, you know, what, um, I suppose, like, what resources are they going to make available for that? And what strings are going to be attached to that? Now, that's a question that I can't answer now. And I think we're going to have to just sort of start to kind of move with it as we go. But we've already seen, you know, with the COVID crisis, uh, uh, for example, among many others, we've already seen state interventions in what are essentially freeing up emergency funds for, um, you know, what would otherwise be autonomous organizing efforts. So, um, you know, I think that there's a, a, a good chance that those boundaries are going to blur um, significantly and that that's something that we can sort of be prepared for and sort of maybe um, position ourselves in a way where that can be actually advantageous for us. Um, because I think that that part of reducing the sort of like panic that, you know, is something that that threatens elite control over over our societies Um will start to potentially look like supporting some of the projects that we would want to see that would help us move away from them to some extent. Um, now, obviously that's my like kind of optimistic stance on this issue. And it's something I, I, I personally am, I'm trying to work toward and, you know, I'm kind of at this point in my life where I'm thinking, well, you know, the crises that we're facing down right now are, very realistically just beyond our, you know, existing resources to engage with. And I'm, I'm personally starting to come toward this idea of being a little bit less precious about where emergency resources are coming from, provided that we're very thoughtful about how we use them, right? So that we're not building organizations that depend on, you know, say funding or um, resource distribution from state or, you know, NGOs or whatever, but that we're, like when those funds are available in these kind of like crisis panic moments, perhaps we're able to kind of capture some of them and use them to build these longer, uh, these more durable, longer term systems that we're going to definitely continue to need to build. I think I think we can see a bit a, a bit of a window into how the wealthy and powerful are going to respond based on what they're already doing. Right. So if we look at the strategies they're already employing, um, some of them want to shoot themselves to Mars. Right. Like that's 
for Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, that's their strategy to deal with climate change is just go to Mars, right? Some people are building these ridiculous bespoke custom bunkers like in Idaho and they're hiring whole like military contracting companies to like defend them in the case of, of a disaster, right? Other people are sort of, you know, taking this the kind of sort of profit first approach, right? And what they're doing is they're sort of engaging, but only to the degree that it becomes profitable. And those are kind of the approaches that we're seeing right now. And all of them share something in common, which is every single one of them is a strategy of distancing. They're all strategies of abdicating responsibility, right? They're all strategies of being able to say, well, we screwed everything up, but now we're just going to peace out later. Have fun. And reducing, I mean, we talked about this earlier, right? This kind of reduction of the area in which crisis is controllable, right? And how that's shrinking. A lot of these strategies that we're starting to see amongst the wealthy and powerful are tending in that direction, whether that's sort of as this kind of, you know, isolated compound or whether that's sort of as a weird seed steading Ayn Rand inspired colony or whatever. There's all of this. There's this kind of consistency in the we are going to, you know, essentially select the people that we want to survive and then we're going to create a condition that's survivable and sacrifice everything else. Now, I think what's going to be interesting about that is we have to actually think about what wealth and political power actually are, which is that wealth is a category that exists in relation to market capitalism, and at least in the way that it's understood in this question, right? Like in the context of this question, it's not something that say in a situation in which whole cities are getting flooded, massive amounts of people are getting displaced, there's huge resource shortages. That's not a situation in which capitalism survives necessarily. And then what happens to wealth at that point for these people? Because all of a sudden that wealth is irrelevant, right? What happens to political power when the state breaks down? It doesn't mean anything. And so the only point I see these people intervening in any kind of serious way is that the point in which their own positionality becomes threatened, in which wealth and political power see, are starting to collapse and are starting to be less and less and less operative in everyday life, right? That's the moment in which I can see them responding. Um, we have an example of this a bit if we look at the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, where there were many, 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 many people inside the bureaucracy that just did whatever they needed to do to kind of survive um, kind of stagnation and resource shortages and things like this, um, only to at the very, very, very end, try and act drastically to save the system from itself. Right. Um, I see a similar thing, unfortunately, playing out here. Uh, and it's one of these, it's one of these dynamics, which is going to necessarily persist unless something very dramatic changes either in the process of this collapse or, or prior to that. Yeah, I mean, I think like that certainly is true of the elite elite. And I guess to whatever extent, not to like complicate this un unnecessarily, but to complicate it in a way that feels useful to me, at least. Um, I think that there's going to be uh, increasing division among the elites in terms of how to engage with this. And, you know, if we're talking about like the local elites, right? We're talking about the people with political power in a municipality or in a county government or something like that. Now, obviously, we understand that those aren't elites in the in the grander sense, like those are not the people who are trying to flee to Mars or whatever. But these are people who 
um, at least by proximity, have some accountability to people around them because these are people whose, you know, offices and homes you can storm or whatever. Um, and we see this also, like, I don't know, I'm thinking about, you know, in the Great Depression, like, not to say that this was a good outcome, but a lot of the federal relief was the result of, you know, panicked governors that were, you know, being called by panicked mayors because people were storming their offices and their houses, right? Um, that, like, I, th- I think that there, that there are people who are working in earnest now, um, and attempting to use the tools of the systems that they understand and that they understand their capacities within to address some of the actually like pretty fundamental and core challenges. And I think that this is going to be something that's going to be ineffective broadly, but that there may be, you know, I, I mean, honestly, like again, you know, researching climate change, like I'm, Increasingly, I have the opinion this is going to be an incredibly heterogeneous reality that we're going to be living in. It's going to be increasingly difficult to ask and answer questions like that, right? It's going to depend on, you know, again, who you are, where you are, you know, as it already does, but but more and more and more so to a finer, like, you know, finer grain of detail. And I personally am not entirely prepared to... um throw out some of the the work that they're doing. Like, for example, like I, you know, I don't think that there are going to be market solutions to climate change. But if people working on market solutions to climate change buy us an extra few years, that might make a big difference right now. And I'm not going to put any energy or effort toward it. You know, I don't think that anybody else that I would, you know, uh, be talking to should do that. Um, but at the same time, like I, I find it difficult to paint the entire project of elite response to climate change with the same brush uh, at this point um, for whatever that's worth. Well, to, to build on what you're saying, ideally we would be organizing movements that for those who earnestly want to address climate change would ultimately be the most promising spaces in which they could make use of their talents for the benefit of humanity. You know, yeah, absolutely. One, we want their networks and their projects to rupture and collapse and for the, the most talented and the most earnest and sincere people from those, you know, from those parts of society to, to make common cause with the rest of humanity and, and try to do something that is, is motivated by, you know, real, like real values. And I, I think that you know, some of them may do that. We want to create the conditions for that. The the other side, the the grim side of what y'all are talking about is that, um, you know, as capitalism collapses, if we use the Soviet Union as a model or any of these other reference points, we're going to be seeing civil wars. We're going to be seeing uh, like mass conflicts and people like Jeff Bezos who are setting out to preserve themselves by having private security forces. You know, they'll have the problem with the Praetorian Guard trying to take power in their, in their enclaves. So, um, the other thing that we can aspire to do is that, that I think is part of the anarchist project is to develop ways of resolving conflicts and, and creating spaces that people will want to be in so that we're not the, so the future doesn't just look like perpetual civil war between you know, armed mercenaries. One other thing I'd add on this point is that in many ways we're already seeing some of this stuff play out as a lot of countries are seeing this rise in 
you know, neo-fascism, far-right populism. I mean, literally a couple of days ago, we just saw a neo-fascist elected to office in Italy, part of the uh, Brothers of Italy party. And I think we're going to eventually have to come up against a reality in which the far-right embraces uh, the realities of climate change and uses that as a talking point for why we should build up and militarize borders more so. I mean, maybe even a way that, you know, neoliberalism, you know, surpasses neoliberalism. Uh, but say, like, this is why we need to cut off these people. This is why we should basically allow them to die and we should conserve for ourselves. Uh, so I think that's why we need to also work to articulate, you know, our own vision uh, so we can push back against both sort of this neoliberal conception that the market's going to save us or a neo-fascist one that we need to build up our own fortresses against the outside world. Yeah, absolutely. I think also that that's kind of a trauma response, right? Like this idea that, you know, and it's, it's reasonable that we would be in, in, you know, the individual might be in that, in that headspace right now. I think when, you know, um, we're not like super well suited, I think as, uh, you know, as a species for the kind of existential danger that we're facing right now, right? Like we're not great at making long-term risk assessments and things like that, um, you know, as, as individual animals. And I, I think, um, you know, this, this idea that a lot of people are, are, um, you know, responding from a fear-based place and like trying to hold on to what they perceive as their, their own security, something we have to take seriously. Um, you know, it, it, it's not, like, it's not nonsensical that somebody would be thinking that way when what they're concerned about is the survival of their children or, you know, their, you know, whatever it is that they're, that they're trying to do whatever projects and whatever things are important to them. Um, and I think that that's one of the reasons why, like, you know, what, what y'all are saying about um, building our narratives and engaging with people around their values that we share, which, you know, um, maybe are inflected in their understanding differently. But, you know, like we also want their children to survive and have good lives. Right. And we also want everybody else's children to survive and have good lives as well. And we see those things as, as you know, inextricable. Um but for a lot of people, that's not that's not necessarily obvious. And and that as we're we're kind of moving into these spaces and thinking about what what we're working on and what we're building. You know, I mentioned before that people who have this kind of pro-social view um, in advance of a crisis, that they become more pro-social in the event of a crisis. And people who have this more pro-individual view um, in advance of a crisis become more pro-individuality in the experience of a crisis. And that leads to the kinds of things that, that, um, you know, that we're already seeing in the context of this kind of like eco-fascist, uh, behavior. I think, um, y'all might remember that, you know, after the campfire, there was a, this was a, the, a big fire here in California, um, that the three percenters set up in front of one of the relief centers and were deciding who could and couldn't come in to receive uh, you know, emergency aid that we know that the um, militia projects are paying attention to things like uh, critical infrastructure and water sources and water supplies and these kinds of issues. And we know that's going to make things increasingly more difficult um, for everybody. I feel like I'm getting a little off topic now, but like that the, you know, that that sort of upshot 
is that um, I think we're going to really have to start to kind of like approach people with like maybe more compassion for the ways that they are really struggling with meaning and with like the kinds of things that you need to take for granted in order to even be able to like make plans day to day right now. And that, you know, it's um, that we can see, you know, sort of how those kind of uh, psychic pains and like the cognitive dissonance of life in this world is pushing them toward these kind of oversimplified um, understandings of like what it is going to take to secure their individual or like, you know, immediate, you know, people around them to secure their safety. Um, and so then, yeah, I guess that just, I just reiterate back to the point that that was made more elo- eloquently before about how important it is for us to, to build up and, and, um, you know, expand out these like positive, affirmative, like life giving narratives and, and life giving communities, um, that are just obviously better to be in and to be part of. And so then therefore they actually have to be better to be in and be part of uh, than the alternative. No matter what the day keeps bringing, I keep singing through the six extinction. Daily life knocks me out, I keep swinging from the coming ice age to the fire season. No matter what the day keeps bringing, I keep singing through the six extinction. Daily life knocks me out, I keep swinging from the coming ice age to the fire season. Numb, bumbling, without a salary, humbly humming, confronting totality, stumbling to the rhythm, running with the scissors, running with the wolves, running against the system. Through the holes in the ozone, I see the gods poking out our eyes, but I barely cry. The body count rises, the world moves on. Everything surprises you, nothing does or can Just trying to manage my time productively To live beyond the desolation they forced on me I was born with guns drawn on me But I refused to pit that they get dug for me A friend said to me, you gotta stay in the fight That's what I didn't do Stubborn is a stubborn nose, my attribute What is anything worth making Between big boss and inflation All this waiting is egging on a sinking feeling No matter what the day keeps bringing I keep singing through the Six extinction Daily life knocks me out I keep swinging From the coming ice age To the fire season No matter what the day Keeps bringing I keep singing Through the six extinction Daily life knocks me out I keep swinging From the coming ice age To the fire season My grandfather My favorite role model Now lies dead But he left me The shotgun He kept under his bed And I don't like guns But I do mind dying Break dancing To a broken world With imperfect time Hardest bars is no one rules us Still believe we got this, I mean we got us History is the deepest conspiracy, they fooled us Ready for the newness, I refuse to eat dust No longer choking on your exhaust All of us tied pawns in the holocaust Just wanna break bread with friends, escape the mausoleum And take my kid maskless to a science museum Those over there were the dinosaurs And they roamed the planet for 165 million years Us humans been around 100,000 and we blasted it to bits without the need for a comment No matter what the day keeps bringing I keep singing through the six extinction Daily life knocks me out, I keep swinging From the coming ice age to the fire season No matter what the day keeps bringing I keep singing through the six extinction Daily life knocks me out, I keep swinging From the coming ice age to the fire season
does it make sense for the climate movement to make demands? Um, I know demands have been sort of a, an issue that people have kind of gone back and forth over. I'll start, since I'm coming from a collective that published a widely read text entitled Why We Don't Make Demands, addressing precisely this, you know, and our analysis has always been that it's better to uh, organize powerful movements and that force the people who hold who hold power to to make concessions uh, rather than identifying in advance what would serve to get us out of the streets. We emphasize the problem and and create a situation in which they they have to uh, in which they have to try to appease us. I think I think that's I, I you know we made this proposal. Uh, coming out of the initial uprising in, in Ferguson in 2014, and and I think it's been borne out by the events since then that the the most powerful movements have been demandless. Um, and I want to I want to encourage people if they want to hear our our case for this to to just read our text why we don't make demands. But I I want to say something also about what. Um, what the movement against the causes of climate change could learn from the George Floyd uprising. You know, um, I, I think that we need a, a mass based way to respond to these emergencies in, in a way that, that makes use of the urgency that as it arises, you know, um, to, to, uh, to create leverage or to, to exert leverage on the, the people who are disproportionately responsible for these disasters. And I think that there's a, a reasonable analogy between the way that um, policing in the United States disproportionately uh, impacts you know, communities of, of color, specifically black and indigenous and Latino, Latina communities, and, um, and the way that climate catastrophes, um, like the hurricane that's hitting Florida right now will do the same thing. You know, I, I think that rather than forming nonprofit pressure groups that are going to try to advance demands, somebody is going to do that. Someone's going to do that regardless. But that what we need to do is identify targets, um, that people can exert leverage on, uh, and, you know, tactics that are comprehensible and participatory. The, the, the George Floyd uprising spread because in the decade leading up to it, um, people had developed and popularized an analysis of racialized white supremacy and police violence that explained things that, that nobody else in society could explain and an associated tool set of tactics so that if you understood the analysis, there was something that you could immediately do in the streets in, in response to these flashpoints, these specific times and places in which it would be understood if you, if you took action what you were responding to and why. And for, for me, this is the question. What if every time there's a hurricane, every time there's a wildfire, uh, when, when everybody around the country or around the world would understand people took action, uh, in, in a way that would, would show who is responsible, who is disproportionately responsible for this situation and create a social emergency for them, a crisis of their legitimacy. I think that would be the way to exert actual leverage on the the people who are responsible for the situation. And I think that that is the question we should be thinking about, not how to refine our demands to create something reasonable, you know, or something that's feasible under the the current 
uh, situation or in light of current discourses, but to, you know, because again, people didn't think that abolish the police would be socially comprehensible in 2019. It became socially comprehensible because of the courageous actions of the people who occupied the third precinct in, in May 2020. Similarly, we should be thinking about what actions we could take uh, that would create a situation in which those who hold power would be making us proposals, would be trying to make concessions to our movements. So going forward, how do we see the situation with climate refugees playing out? What trends now will only continue into the future? And how do we build solidarity not only with those caught between borders, but also in the majority world, which are being hit the hardest by the crisis? I think a lot of it is going to depend on how we define what counts as a climate refugee, right? Like in the context of this question. So we have people obviously displaced by disaster, right? We see that all the time, um, unfortunately. And that number is increasing. But I think one of the things that isn't talked about a lot is what are the follow-on effects of that displacement, right? So um, one of the things that we are going to see in a situation of displacement is we're going to see, for example, there being just objectively less housing, right? There are going to be houses that are getting flooded and the same number of people. One of the things that economists have been writing about that I've been kind of paying attention to is the way that things like the, um, like the advance, the advancement of climate change, the, the way that that dis- creates displacement, um, also has the possibility of creating things like housing shortages and therefore gentrification, right? It has this possibility of vastly increasing global conflict, right? Arundhati Roy was writing about this in the early 2000s over about water. Um, but we are already seeing not just conflicts between states, but say out in California or Colorado, there's conflicts between different social groups over water usage, right? Um, there is a, There are a lot of people that are starting to talk about the ways that climate change has already created conditions for political unrest, right? One of the examples that's used consistently is actually Syria, um, that before the uprising there, a lot of the regions where the uprising sort of immediately emerged were regions that were experiencing droughts and that the government had cut subsidies in the last years before that, right? And people were struggling financially. Um, so we're, we're likely to see follow on effects like this as well. And so, it's not just a question of, of, say, climate refugees as a separated group. I think really it is this question of a vast displacement of the way that people understand everyday life right now um, in, in such a way that very likely a lot of the ways that we think about life today are going to change potentially drastically. Um, I don't know when we are going to experience a lot of those effects, say, in the part of the United States I live in, which doesn't have any natural disasters and is, you know, away from rising bodies of water generally and is above sea level enough to be fine. Um, we're not experiencing effects yet. But in lots of parts of the world and in other parts of the United States, those effects are already happening. Right. And we are already seeing some of these side effects play out. Uh, people who, who got displaced in Paradise, California, one of the things that they're talking about is um, they had a really hard time finding places to move. Uh, while their houses were getting rebuilt, if their houses were getting rebuilt, because say they wanted to move, say, to the Bay Area. Well, they can't afford that. They couldn't afford to move to San Jose or Sacramento or or anything. And so a lot of them ended up staying in things like long term stay hotels and things like this. 
right? And there are people who even up to six months ago were getting interviewed uh, by media organizations that still are living in long-term stay motels, right? Um, that is a form of displacement as well. And so I think we have to think about this question really expansively, right? Um, as sort of this, this question of what are all of these displacements very likely to, to potentially look like and how are they going to impact each other? Um, I think when we start to think about that in aggregate, it gets almost impossible to determine. Um, but I think in this sort of immediacy of this question, um, I don't really have an answer, but all I would like to encourage people to do is start to think about this question um, in really expansive ways, right? Beyond just the displacement of people, but into sort of the follow on economic political effects of, of what that means. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, that this question of like, what is a climate refugee is really important and kind of spoke a bit to it earlier. Um, you know, when we have people who are displaced from regions, like you say, for example, like in paradise, paradise was, uh, burned to the ground. The closest next city over was Chico. Chico's been experiencing a housing crisis ever since then. Um, that created additional layers of displacement for people who were already living in Chico, as well as people who were living in Paradise and couldn't afford to go back to Paradise. The property values in Paradise, I understand, are actually significantly higher now than they were before the fire, which, you know, is something that's confusing but now they've got all this new construction and you know people who are moving out there who didn't even live there before because they want to build their dream homes now and this you know the whole thing is the whole thing is complicated and you know it's kind of a similar thing that we saw right uh following katrina which now we have a lot of kind of longitudinal whatever we got a lot we've been able to to see what has happened to people over time right like so you have climate refugees that left new orleans and you have those that came back and remained displaced internally. You have a lot of those that that didn't come back and now are, you know, rooted in new communities or maybe not. You know, I think, you know, something I brought up earlier that I really like to to bring back into into our frame now is that people who are moving in response to um, a large number of climate based disruptions are often people who have the opportunity to leave, are often people who have the resources to leave, um, that you also then have people who are left behind in these places that we would consider um, crisis zones, disaster zones, and that that's also going to be something that we're going to have to be thinking a lot about. And, you know, as people who, you know, I'm from California and am, you know, unable to uh, imagine much of a future out here. And, like, what does that mean for people who who stay in that space, what does that mean for people who leave there? Um, those are pretty important questions. I think to your kind of like original question, you know, when we're talking about people who's, you know, the places that they're from are physically uninhabitable, right? Like the place I'm always thinking about is Bangladesh. Um, <clears throat> in particular, you know, where you're seeing uh, that there are there are issues coming up in around flooding, you know, in, in nearby areas. But one of the things that makes Bangladesh particularly um, important as a, as a place to look in, in the context of, you know, what is, how is migration going to impact the, the larger, um, political realities that people are dealing with, um, is that Bangladesh is currently fenced in on all sides, but the side that's open to the water and that, you know, this is, you know, with India surrounding it in its entirety, um, and that that fence is being guarded by 30,000 people, uh, all the time and that you could get shot simply for approaching it. 
and that this is not something that we should expect as unusual um, when you're talking about a place that has, you know, what a billion people and, um, you know, 30 percent, I think, of it is at sea level and the rest of it is already approaching too hot to survive in the summers. Um, that as we're sort of like looking at this kind of like, you know, land is is physically uninhabitable. People have to move versus land is uninhabitable and people can't move. This is why I think one of the things that I've been thinking about for a long time is why the um, migrant support and squatters movements in the parts of um, the Mediterranean where those really kick back off, like following, you know, the quote unquote refugee crisis um, that was sort of instigated by the Syrian civil war, like why those things became so, um, so important and why that's like such an important um, like strategic and tactical space for our, our kind of connecting with this question of like, what does it mean for property to be private? Um, in the context of like shifting habitability, right? And what does it mean for us to have the right to exist in a particular place or not? And how is that challenged in a really fundamental way by the flat out unlivability of parts of the, of the world that have been inhabited for, you know, for quite some time. Groups like Extinction Rebellion have argued that Nation states are needed to help mitigate the climate crisis, or at least, you know, some people within that group, to be fair. I'm curious, you know, how do we respond to that notion we've been arguing instead for an autonomous grassroots non-state response? Well, unfortunately, there are a lot of problems with relying on states to solve the problems that, that they have helped to create. Um, one of the things that could go awry with the, you know, the kind of pressure campaign that Extinction Rebellion and other groups have been pursuing is that it could end up as a sort of a, a larger scale version. It, it could end with the state implementing a larger scale version of the sort of measures that touched off the Gilets Jean movement in France a couple of years ago, where, you know, suddenly, uh, gasoline became much more expensive. And then you had this populist movement, uh, that was responding to this because, you know, the lives of ordinary poor working people were, were not improved. They actually just became more difficult because of, of this ostensibly environmental measure. Neoliberal states, which are fundamentally driven by the profit imperative and the, the imperative to concentrate resources in fewer and fewer hands, will, will always pass down the costs of change. And in a worst case, this would create a false dichotomy between ecological concerns and class struggle. So, it, from my perspective, we must not become associated with the failures of the liberals of the liberal or neoliberal state. You know, if if ordinary people see environmentalists as as people who want to make their lives harder, um, that will create a fundamental uh, you know, false dichotomy in in the public mind that will mean that we will lose the social struggles of our era. This is a good reason not to be associated with the state and with with state measures. We have a for the last decade in crime think circles, we've had this hypothesis we call hot potato theory, which is that, you know, the state really can't uh, mitigate the impacts of the crises that capitalism has been generating. And so whoever holds state power rapidly loses legitimacy. And we've seen this hypothesis confirmed, unfortunately, with the recent events in, in Chile, as well as before that, uh, Greece and you know, Brazil, various places where where 
left, governments have held power and have not been able to come through on their promises. So from my perspective, if we're trying to build powerful autonomous movements, we need to be very clear that those movements are not associated with the state and the kind of measures that the state can engage in. Um, and to say a little bit more about this, you know, because it, some some people who want the state to address to who some people who want the state to be the the prime primary engine of addressing climate crises, you know, they're not in favor of neoliberalism. They're in favor of something more like uh, ecological Maoism or something. You know, but again, these are the same people who point to the rapid industrialization of the USSR in the early 20th century as its chief accomplishment. And now they are promising us that only the state could produce a solution to climate catastrophe. You know, and the, the thing I, I would say in response to that is that, you know, anybody who's trying to manage a nation via government knows that you end up doing most of what you do for reasons of state. You, you know, that in order to maintain control over a population, you know, in order to carry out that kind of management, it, it requires force itself, not just to impose governance on people, but also to compete with other aspiring governments, both within your nation state and outside of it in other in other countries. So, you know, Lenin and and Stalin knew that they had to industrialize the, the Soviet Union very rapidly to compete with the other uh, capitalist countries, you know, but that doesn't their success in doing that does not mean that they would similarly be able to carry out degrowth and uh and a transition to sustainable um sustainable technologies under these circumstances on the contrary everybody who sets out to manage a state ends up competing with with other states to you know effectively to be the most powerful militarists and, and capitalists so our hypothesis has always been that if you want to bring about social change, the most effective way to do so is to concentrate on autonomous social movements that are driven uh, by the the ethics that that you know that that we hold, not by the um, the necessities of competing for power. I think somebody will always show up to try to make a career for themselves out of trying to implement our proposals through the state, but we will get the the best return on our energy, on our investment of time and effort. If if we are always using those to try to create direct change and to create a situation that, you know, the politicians have to have to run along behind us, promising to do for us what what we demonstrate that we can do ourselves. Otherwise, they'll have no incentive to do those things. Both uh, Andreas Malm and, and before him, the people from Deep Green Resistance, you know, they acknowledge that confusingly to them, anarchists were disproportionately responsible for carrying out precisely the kind of tactics and strategies that, that they are calling for as pro-state uh, environmentalists. But, you know, in order to center their own ahistorical proposals, they, they, they've had to accuse us of not being effective and make the case that somehow if there had been a statist direct action-based environmentalism, that would have been more effective. It just didn't exist. I would say, in fact, it's not a coincidence that anti-colonial, anti-state movements have always been at the forefront of ecological struggles and that, that what we need to focus on is expanding an anarchist, anti-colonial, you know, indigenous-led uh, ecological movement rather than trying to take control of the state structures and imagining that this time, for once, they, they could be used for good. Um, I, I think that there's also this kind of second question, 
which a lot of these people like pro-state environmentalists don't like to really sort of address, which is what world does their proposal result in, <laughs> right? So I think we're all aware that like ultimately at the end of the day, any attempts to mitigate either the causes or effects of climate change are based in the actions that we ourselves take, both as individuals and as communities, right? Um, not as sort of national entities or citizens or something like this, right? That really the question of climate change is a question of both capitalism and also sort of our the way that we live everyday life, right? Now, within this, what that would mean for the state, and you know, for all their flaws, the Invisible Committee brings this up um, in a number of different ways. But um, one of the things that they talk about, which I think is really salient here, is if we are talking about really a question of personal practice, consumption, things like this, right, um, on top of sort of capitalist modes of production, to have a state actually function in such a way as to be able to regulate um, that sort of activity, we are really talking about a state policing activity on a microscopic level. Like we are talking about the state policing activity on the level of how much we eat, how much water we use, whether we go to the store or not, right? Basic everyday life activities, right? And most importantly, that as resources get more and more and more scarce, that policing gets more and more and more expensive. And so we have to start to really think you know, we were talking about this world in which we end up with these kind of armed enclaves of exclusion, right? And in a lot of ways, states already are that. They're armed enclaves of exclusion. They're defined by their outside. Um, so if we're going to try and sort of address this problem, really, not only are we talking about an issue of states and competition not being able to sort of work together, but we are also talking about a police state situation. We are talking about a world in which Every single element of our activity is regulated by the state. There are then many, 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 many problems that arise at this point, such as how does one determine whether people that operate the state know universal truth? Because they don't. They're just people with opinions and understandings of the world. And so once we come to understand that, the state response to climate change really becomes about expanding the power of policing to impose the will of still a small number of entirely arbitrary people. Right. That doesn't fundamentally, qualitatively uh, change life for the better. Right. That's not a world I want to live in. Like, I don't want to live in a world in which the best I do is material survival. Because that is really what the pro state types in a group like Extinction Rebellion are proposing is ultimately at the end of the day, they're proposing a survival first quality of life last sort of proposal. Right. They're talking about what happens when we reduce humanity down to numbers that we can measure and then determine how much of a population can survive. Right. We get treated as part of a population or as a citizen in that context and in that we lose all of our ability to not only determine how we address climate change, but how we address any other elements of our lives. When we're thinking about these centralized responses and this kind of like top down imposition of uh, changes in in behavior, um, you know, that also goes back to sort of like, you know, erasing the ways in which we are not all equally responsible for climate change, which I know is like a, you know, an argument that we're all quite familiar with, but is really, I think, important to bring back in at this moment. Right. Um, to 
you know, again, you know, as you mentioned, climate change is these kind of two big problems, right? We have these like big infrastructural pieces that are that are happening from these like highly centralized and like, um, you know, uh, extractive systems with their own logics. And we also have our sort of like everyday behaviors that are kind of conditioned by that and like the feedback into and into that. Um, but that on the ground reality is that that looks different in in every place, right? It looks different everywhere all over the world. And what kinds of changes need to happen in each um, community, let alone in each region, uh, let alone in each country, you know, um, that's that's different. And in reality, the only people who actually have the necessary knowledge to understand what kinds of adaptations are necessary in each individual place are people who are on the ground and have a more intimate understanding of conditions in those places. And so when we attempt to try to create these centralized responses, we actually miss the vast majority of the opportunities for say things like ecological restoration or, um, you know, shifts in um, creating sort of like sustainable living networks and, you know, attending to the needs of, of in which we live to whatever extent, I think that groups like extinction rebellion are, are organizing and, and, you know, as, was mentioned before, are going to continue doing that work independent of, you know, whatever it is that, that we're doing to put pressure on the state to um, maybe alleviate some of the kind of like, you know, sort of ongoing behaviors that ensure like additional complexity in the struggles that we engage in on the ground. Like, um, I don't think that's necessarily in conflict with what we need to be doing so long as, again, we're not um, being distracted by the, the efforts that are going in, into that space. And I know that that's, that's complicated because a lot of people are going to move toward that because it looks more like a politics that they're familiar with. Um, but I do think that to whatever extent we are realistic about what's been going on now, the vast majority of climate adaptation and mitigation happens at the municipal scale, right? So um, when I'm thinking about how we're engaging with the state or whether or not we're engaging with the state. Again, I don't think of this as a strategic uh, orientation, right? This engagement with the state, but I do think that in the local, at the local scale, um, that is something that is happening and that we might sort of separate, I guess, in this kind of a, um, in this conversation, right? When we're thinking about like, obviously, um, you know, when we're talking about the capitalist state and the like, you know, um, federal government and the, you know, interests of the federal government and the interests of the, you know, of the, the elites that the capitalist elites that are, that are, um, all wrapped up with that. I think we're talking about something, um, slightly different, uh, than if we're talking about the, um, you know, the uh, emergency funding that's being doled out to deal with the, you know, water crisis in Jackson and whether or not, you know, we can expect somebody who is attempting to build an alternative water um, access project to refuse emergency funds from their local government. I don't know. I don't have the, you know, the answers to this. Like, I don't think there's like an easy sort of like um, principled stance to take on that personally. But maybe this is because like, you know, I'm, I'm now thinking of everything in the context of just like increasing and in difficult nuance. Um I would prefer not to have to do that, but do I think that we're going to get from here to, I do think with, as you know, increasing crisis, 
is happening. I do think that there are a lot of panic responses that people are engaging in that can be more or less useful and that putting pressure on the um, on the people who are making decisions about what kinds of projects are being enacted in our very local spaces. I think there's there's a probably a bigger chance for um, positive outcomes from that than, you know, obviously I don't I don't think that there's any value to to lobbying the federal government on behalf of the planet. But um, I don't know if they've got if they're going to be spending money on something in the context of a crisis. I'd prefer that it go to people who are working with our values and ethics projects, because I don't think that the um, I don't think that there's a clear idea. You know, I think when we talk about what the state's interests are in terms of climate change, again, like we know this, is, we, we can we can see what this is at the at this like larger level. You know, what's happening at the more um, at the more local levels at the, you know, in the smaller sort of smallest state spaces like that is where you know currently and you know for the foreseeable future the majority of the resources that are being spent on on climate preparation um and climate mitigation are are being like distributed i don't like that but like at the on the timeline that we're on right now well to be clear i'm not arguing that no one should accept uh, a shipment of water bottles from a state or or city government. Uh, I'm I'm just saying that when we think about uh, what kind of solutions we're we're pursuing or or what you know what we want to legitimize that um, that as you say, uh, people who are on the ground and can see in front of them what the problems are are going to be the wisest about about what the the problems to solve are and that uh centralizing decision making power in in the hands of a few people who are supposed to determine what happens for everybody is is inefficient and that kind of centralism we've already seen in the 20th century where that leads so let nobody use the climate crisis as an excuse for a new generation of authoritarianism that's that's my only that's my only point here no, sorry. That is a very strong point. <laughs> I think that's very important. So, um, but, you know, it's just like kind of, I don't know, because I, you know, I think about this from a perspective of trauma and community and collective trauma. Um, and there's so much evidence, you know, from like, if, even if you want to get into this formal institutional research that people coming in to solve these problems creates, you know, obviously we know this experientially, but they, it creates, you know, a whole host of, of, long-term problems with the collapse of the kinds of uh, localized infrastructure that is, uh, you know, then supposed to do the ongoing work of rebuilding. And there's also a lot of like personal individual um, health outcomes that are made far worse by having people come in and solve your problems than, you know, solving your problems uh, together with the people around you and having a sense of agency and a sense of meaning around that. And so this is kind of where I'm often coming from um, when I'm thinking about, you know, how to relate to the state in the context of climate, um, climate crisis, increasing um, climate destabilization. And it does seem to me from the experiences that I've had and from, you know, from my research um, that there are a lot of people who are 
sort of being given the task of solving this problem who have no fucking idea what they're doing and who are looking for opportunities to fund projects where people feel confident that they can solve at least some kind of a related problem. Um, now, you know, again, strategically, I'm not arguing that we should be going out and trying to like shake down uh, those resources, but I also think it makes sense to imagine some kind of a short term. <laughs> I hate, I hate this. Uh, it's really challenged a lot of my, you know, kind of like ideological uh, perspectives, like trying to engage from a practical perspective on like what community climate response looks like, you know, again, like back to the earlier parts of our conversation beyond just crisis management and an attempt to, you know, as people were saying before, recreate some sense of normalcy. Um, I don't have the answers. So maybe I apologize if I'm just raising questions that like make it difficult to talk about this stuff in a in a a way that makes sense um it feels to me like a a very you know a very thorny question it seems like it should be more straightforward i wish it was more straightforward you know we've been talking about the realities and the threats of climate change and how this is impacting you know essentially everything else that's going on you know for instance somebody brought up the growth of defense of uh, houseless encampments and somebody else brought up how climate change is displacing so many people. So there's a connection right there. So we often use this slogan, you know, no one is coming to save us. And that's becoming more and more real by the day. How does this reality then inform, you know, as we go forward? <laughs> I have about five, five friends who are going to get pretty upset with me for saying this, but I always go back to desert when I talk about this question. Um, because I think that book poses one really important proposition um, on top of everything else that's in there. But the core proposition of that text is what happens when saving the world is no longer a category, right? That so much of uh, radicalism within modernity, within the kind of modernist period, has been grounded in this notion of sort of constructing utopias, building these kind of you know, worlds in which everybody like realizes this huge potential and that the world is saved and the earth heals and all of this, right? And that is obviously what we all would want, right? Um, but I think the realities of climate change and resource shortages um, and all of the follow-on effects of those, the increase in global conflict, the increase in, in displacement, the sort of concentration of wealth in enclaves and, and this sort of um, and this sort of process of, of concentration that we're watching. Um, when we're starting to think about the world fragmenting in this way, I think a number of things become really clear, which is that, firstly, the idea that there was ever singular solutions or even singular problems was always kind of absurd, right? That that wasn't um, really a category that had any sort of philosophical use, right? That it ended up becoming a basis for reductionism. And a lot of the, the sort of structure of failed modernist political projects like the USSR were sort of grounded in that, in that notion. Um, and so 
I really think that one of the things that we need to do, and a number, I think both of you all have mentioned this at various points, but I think one of the things that this does is it forces us to refocus our activity in much more immediate ways and sort of outside of just like clear ideological sort of limitations and into more dynamic forms of thinking, right? And it forces us to have to engage with our environments as we're engaging politically in ways that I would say sort of ideological approaches to politics don't facilitate, right? And so it sort of shifts our, our mode. It shifts our lens away from conservation and saving and now into this much more thorny, much more complicated question of, say, you know, figuring out how to exist within this context of collapse, right? And then figuring out how to do our political project within that context. Um, now in other words, I think what happens is now we have to assume the context and that that context imposes some very core limitations on the way that I think uh, not just anarchist politics, but radical politics in general has sort of been conceived of over the last couple hundred years or so. I mean, I think that all really resonates with me. And I think in particular, um, you know, of course, we all knew that no one was coming to save us. Um, but it seems really significant that increasingly more and more people are coming to terms with that reality. Um, I do think there are a lot of people who have known that even far longer than you know, many of us have and that we have a lot to learn from people who have been living for hundreds of years in a um, a space of, of uncertain futures um, in terms of, of how we approach the situation and whether we're seeking, um, you know, what kinds of solutions or wh- how we understand, like, what a solution looks like in this time. Um, it strikes me as as pretty important that um what you mentioned, uh, this is really coming back down to the sort of immediate space um, that we're being asked right now to handle something that is incredibly disruptive at the human scale. Um, and also something that that calls us to this enormous, um, you know, sort of the the enormity of our of our of our broader interconnected world um, so that, you know, at this time we're we're meant to hold. Um, these these very different uh, scales of of reality, maybe than a lot of people are are used to living in. Um, you know, when they're focused focused mostly on the on the interpersonal and the social. I think uh, you know that this is going to involve a lot of humility. Uh, I think it's going to involve a lot of growth, um, probably a lot of growing pains. I think it really challenges us in a lot of important ways to. Um, be in different relationship with ourselves, with each other, with the land around us. I think it challenges us in a lot of important ways to really um, acknowledge and understand more uh, more deeply and, and more intimately uh, the interdependence that it makes it possible for life to exist at all and the role that we play in that. I think we have more opportunities than we've had in the past because of all of the, you know, efforts of, of, you know, um, of previous struggles and all of the things that, that we may be able to take for granted now and all these new frameworks that we have to engage with, you know, with questions around, you know, um, you know, transgenerational trauma and, you know, these, uh, 
traumas of displacement and and all these questions that I think there's going to be a lot of healing that's going to be necessary and maybe is newly possible as we move forward. And so that's kind of my hope. And that's why I try to try to hold in that frame. I know personally, like that's something that people around me have become, I think, more interested in 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 the past years than than I had seen in a long time. It's sort of like what are responsibilities in terms of healing ourselves and and our relationships to each other and our and the land that we live on um as we move into like this phase of this problem so i i'm kind of looking forward to seeing what some of the the beautiful experiments that people are engaging in um bring forward as as new potentials for the for the future world I want to conclude by addressing myself directly to the people listening to this podcast, to you, whoever you are who's listening to this. You and I have perhaps participated in some of the same movements. We probably don't know each other. Um, but I imagine that you, like me, are trying to decide what to focus your energy and your attention and your time on in the years ahead of us. You know, will you focus them on trying to establish a, a position in this society and accumulate a little bit of money in it and try to survive? Or, or will you make the dangerous choice of throwing in your lot with, with other anarchists and, and, you know, and rebels who are trying to, to change the world? Uh, for good or for ill, this is a, a moment when, um, when it's no longer a safe bet to gamble that our society will continue the way it has been. Um, when that is not any more realistic or pragmatic than casting your lot with a bunch of, a bunch of wild eyed radicals who are trying to change the world. Because the world is going to change whether, whether we like it or not, you know. And we can, as those changes unfold, we can invest ourselves either in a sort of a every man for himself mentality, every person for themselves, which, uh, which is ironically is pretty much the same as investing yourself in the, uh, in counting on the prevailing order to continue, or we can invest in each other. We can invest in each other, not just as people who might be listening to the same podcast, but in investing in all other human beings on the the basis of what we could do together to enable each other to survive, to enable each other's dreams to come true. And that's what I am trying to do and what I invite you to try to do with with us. Um, and that means that we, we are precious to each other. We have to be precious to each other. That if we don't take care of each other, nobody will. That if we are not there for each other, nobody will be there for us. Uh, I believe that despite all the the challenges and and the heartbreak of, of growing up in this society, that we can develop the skills to to care for each other, to come through for each other, to create the conditions in which we can have something worth sharing. I, I've glimpsed that in the struggles of the last twenty five years, and and in the in the movement to defend the Atlanta forest that I was describing earlier. And I believe that it's something we can share. So whoever you are, if you're fleeing from Florida right now, as the hurricane hits, if you are already uh, a climate refugee from the forest fires in the Northwest, or if you are somebody who those tragedies have not impacted yet, my heart goes out to you. Um, and let's build something together and let's change the world. Thank you very much for the space to talk. 
This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.